Good morning, everyone. It is so good to be here with you. I am so excited to be here this morning. I was really excited and blessed to see the, the young children sing. And uh, yeah, thank you, Lisa and Twyla, whoever got that together, for doing that. Thank you for your investment. I would also like to say that um, while I do not have a Mother's Day message this morning, I would just like to take a moment and, and speak a word to you. Um, you know, if we, we sit here and we look at these young children, to you mothers who are in the trenches today, don't let the influence of our secular society around us influence you into thinking that maybe your role needs to be outside of home. Your role, the influence that you have in the home cannot be overstated. And I want to encourage you and bless you in that. Yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful for all of you in, in how you are doing that. So this morning, I would like to continue our series that we've been doing on suffering. And before we, we I want to recap a little bit, but before that, I want to I remind us of a story that we find in Mark chapter 9. So this is, this is a story where Jesus and Peter, James, and John had been up on the mountain, and um, the transfiguration had happened, and they're coming back down. They're on the way back down the mountain, and they see a crowd. And so they come up to the crowd, and this crowd sees them, and immediately there's, there's kind of this commotion, this, this ruckus going on. And so as they come up to the crowd, the crowd rushes out to meet them, and Jesus asks, so what, what's, what's going on? What, what are you arguing about? And immediately, somebody from the crowd rushes out and says, Master, I have asked your disciples to heal my son. He's possessed with a demon, and they couldn't heal him. Remember that story? And Jesus answers them and says, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And so they bring him to Jesus, and Jesus asks the Father how long this has been going on. And he says, from childhood, and it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. <clears throat> but, and he says, but if you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And if you read that in your Bible, I, found some, I, I discovered something that I, I think the ESV does a better job with the grammar there. The words are almost the same as the King James, but the grammar is better. Jesus is 
repeating what the man says. If you can, well, it's like if you can. Well, if you believe, then all things are possible. And here's, what's, here's what we want to notice in the story. Immediately, the father cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. What an oxymoron. I believe, but help my unbelief. Well, we'll come back to that a little later. But for now, I want to recap a little bit. So we have been, if you're, if you're new here or if you've been gone for a while, the last several messages I've been talking about suffering and just so far we've talked primarily about the theology, what we believe about suffering, uh, what we believe that shapes how we view suffering. And all of us believe something about that. When these difficult times come, when these trials come, there's some, some sort of theology that we believe that influences how we respond to these difficult things. So if you recall, I had, in the first message, I used the story, we kind of framed this series in, in the story of um, Horatio Spafford. Remember the man that wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul? And essentially, we looked at, well, so this man was somewhat of a modern-day Job, if you remember the story. He lost five of his eight children, lost much of his material possessions in the great Chicago fire, and yet he's still able to write this hymn that we still love today, It Is Well With My Soul. And so, essentially, we've set out to answer that question, what did he understand? And today, I believe this will be the final message, and I, I think that we'll find the answer today. So if you recall, we talked about who God is in the first message. God is holy. He's sovereign. He's so merciful to us. I believe it is essential that we have a firm grasp and understanding on who God is. And then we see that man has, by his choice in the garden, by our own personal choices, we have separated ourselves. We have misplaced our desire, the de desire that we've been created with for connection and relationship that desire we have placed on something else. And so there's a disconnection between man and God, and through the blood of Jesus, we can again be connected in a right relationship to the Father. And then in the last message, we saw that even though, in spite of us being reconnected, our human experience, even as Christ followers, is that we still suffer. And remember, <clears throat> we talked about the, the Stockdale Paradox. And, and here's the paradox. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end with, which you can't afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. And the brutal reality of our, the brutal fact of our current reality is that we are living in a broken world. Remember, we looked at Genesis and Romans where because of sin, the entire creation is broken and is under the curse. This is why we have tornadoes and floods and hurricanes and fires and 
such things. It's why we have diseases and viruses and, and all these things. But maybe most important in the last message, we discovered that us being reconnected, us being reconnected to God, that's the beginning of our story. And as people in this broken world, maybe, maybe more so in our Western culture, we see that reconnection, the new birth, we see that as the, the end of the story. Hey, we've been saved, right? And we even, you know, we have our Christian lingo is full of, of those kinds of, of terms. You know, we've, we've come to Jesus and we've um, become saved as if that is a completed, done deal. End of the story. However, if we go to the Scriptures, we see that that's only the beginning of the story. And so one of the reasons we concluded in the last message, one of the reasons that we have a problem with suffering is because we think subconsciously most times that by coming to God, by coming to Jesus, by being reattached in a right connection with Him, that this will be the end of our problem. Remember, we think that Good things should happen to good people, and bad things should happen to bad people. But that's not necessarily the story of the Scriptures. That's not how the early church, it's not how the apostles viewed suffering. Notice how Paul says what Stockdale says in, in Romans verse, uh, chapter 8. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. The New Testament writers unanimously agree that suffering is a part of our Christian experience. And they don't try to minimize it. They don't try to explain it away. It's just there. We're going to see more of that in just a minute. And so we see that a part of the reason that they were able to understand this, that they were able to see this this way, is because they viewed us being reconnected as the beginning of the story and the end of the story is yet to come. Now for this morning, <clears throat> some of you who know your Bibles, have probably noticed that there's several passages of Scripture that I have not yet talked about, several passages that directly speak about suffering. Well, we're going to talk about those this morning. Uh, the first one is Romans chapter 5. I've talked about this a little bit uh, in the very first message. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, reconnected to God by faith, through our faith, we have peace, or we have that relationship, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access, by faith, into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. <clears throat> now, a couple, a couple thoughts here. Notice that it's by our faith 
that we obtain this access into this grace. Also notice that that we stand in this grace. And this is, so this is, what I want us to see is that this is more of a state of being than a state of doing. So we have, by our faith, we have access into this grace. State of being. Not so much an act of doing. Hear me out. I know you're all good Mennonites. But, and then he goes on to say, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So he's pointing forward to the end of the story, right? And if you notice, if you read the New Testament, you begin to see this, this, this theme that the New Testament writers all are anticipating the end of the story. Paul goes on to say here that not only that, but we, oh, you see that? We rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, the Greek word there for suffering is philipsis, and it literally means pressure. So pressure produces endurance, and this is really, the endurance is a, it's a good translation, it, it produces, we're, we're able to keep on. And that produces character, and character gives us hope. Again, pointing forward. Next passage is in James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so, <clears throat> this word that's translated trials is, is a little different word, but it somewhat, it's, it's a very connected word. It has the, very, it has the idea of, of putting something to proof, which is exactly what James is saying here. My brother, when you meet trials of various kinds, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So James is saying that these things come in order to prove the validity of our faith. In order that steadfastness may have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. And so there's the assumption in this passage that the new believer has not yet been tested or made perfect and complete, or we might use the term matured. Again, the assumption is that the beginning, that us being reconnected to God is not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. We have entered into a loving, faith-love relationship with our Creator. And that relationship will change us. 
that we may be perfect and complete. That's, that's not, that perfect and complete is not, to my understanding, that's not future, that's today in our relationship with God here. That we lack nothing. Now, let's just rest on that for a little bit. So we have various trials in order that we lack nothing. One more passage. First Peter. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. So this is First Peter um, chapter 1, verse 6. And the previous three verses, Peter had just laid out a short, brief synopsis of the gospel, of what, what, what the gospel is. And so he's saying, in this, in the gospel, you, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And notice what he says. Essentially the same thing that James just said, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, your faith, which is much more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that when Christ returns, remember what Paul said to the Romans, that the suffering today, that if we suffer with him, then we will also be glorified with him. In Romans chapter 8, verse 16 or 15, Peter's saying the same thing, that if our faith, if our faith is found to be genuine, once it's tested and it's found to be genuine, then we will also be glorified. It will bring praise and glory and honor to Jesus Christ. And so Peter arrives at the same conclusion as Paul and James that honor and glory, that we will be glorified with Jesus at the end of the story. Now, I don't know about you, but being tested is just not, that's not a very, uh, we just don't really care for that, right? And, I mean, I have, never, I have never really seen this before in Scripture. Or, I don't recall that I've ever heard anybody teach on it. Maybe I just didn't hear it. But this has caused me to... This, is, this has given me some, some, some new things to wrestle with. Um, it has given me a new dimension to faith. And we're going to talk about faith. You see, I think much more than we realize that we are influenced by our culture, our broader American culture, to think that Christianity revolves around believing, giving mental assent to a certain set of theological beliefs, and once we are saved and we accept those beliefs, then, then we're good. Notice what Elton Schrubel says. We're going to talk about this. Faith is not belief without proof, but trust without 
reservation. And if we study into, in, into how faith has been used in the passages that we just looked at, there's the idea there, there, this, that this is a relationship that, is, that spans time, right? Like when you become a new believer, this is not just something that has happened today and now it's done. You have begun something that will change who you are. It is something that is, it will completely change who you are. It's relational, it's alive, and it's living. So I would like to talk a little bit about faith, about what faith is. You know, faith is a big word. It's, it's, it's found in the New Testament about 250 sometimes. Um, and maybe in some ways we use it a little, maybe a little carelessly. We use it a lot. And sometimes I'm not sure that we know exactly what we're talking about. At least I have. We often use it as a noun. We speak of our Christian faith. Or we might say that somebody has come to faith, or he is a man of faith. And that's not necessarily incorrect. In fact, all of the New Testament writers use it in that way. Um, Paul uses it when he, in Ephesians chapter 4, when he speaks of one body, one spirit, and there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So he's speaking of faith as a noun. Jude uses it. Um, Paul uses it to Timothy when he speaks of uh, the Spirit expressively says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. And so to use it as a noun is not incorrect. However, I think it's also clear from the previous passages in, in Romans and James and 1 Peter that that is not the only way that it's used. Faith is not just used or maybe there's more dimension to it. I'm not even sure I can properly explain it. Let's, let's keep going. Let's start with Hebrews chapter 11. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This is probably the best explanation in Scripture of what faith is. And let's, let's flesh this out a little bit. Let's unpack this a little bit if we can. So it's, it's the substance of things Hope for, which is pointing forward, and it's the evidence of things not seen. And I, for, I, I always read that as also pointing forward, but I really wonder if that's not actually looking back. And so our faith. Well, let me let me give you let me give you my paraphrase. And and by the way, feel free to to. Um, to push back on this if you want. Faith, here's my paraphrase, faith is an action we take with anticipation of future consequences based on past reality. And let's think this through a little bit. Faith, our faith. Well, let me, let me give you this story. So Dr. Frank Turek in his book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, he makes the case that there is no other religion that proves itself as well as Christianity. In other words, his point is, his case is that it takes much more faith, or I'm not even sure he's using that quite right there, much more hope or wishful thinking to be an atheist 
than it does to be a Christian. Because there's no other event in human history that is so well documented, so well proved as the existence of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. And so when a Christian speaks of faith, he's not simply, it's not wishful thinking. And by the way, our culture believes that Christianity, when we speak of faith, that we simply are speaking of wishful thinking. Look up faith in the dictionary. It doesn't give us an accurate definition of faith. It says basically that it is believing something without evidence. That is false. The Christian faith is not believing something without evidence. That's the whole point of Dr. Frank Turek's book is that the Christian faith has much more evidence than any other religion, especially atheism. However, there are still elements of things about the Christian faith that we don't understand. And we will not understand until that day. That day in the New Testament always means when Jesus comes back. And so those things that we don't understand, we believe in faith. And if we believe them, we are willing to take action towards those things because we believe them. Faith without action is not faith. And so we take action expecting to, to, know, to, to be in relationship, to know these future things because we know what has happened in the past. Let me give you an example. All human beings, all people at all times practice faith at some level. So imagine, most of you probably have flown, and so think this through. You know, so you get on a plane, there's a hundred other people on there, and you go back this, this narrow little aisle, you know, and you, you find this itty-bitty little seat crammed in beside two strangers. And so you sit down, and there's a, a stranger here, big dude, and he's blocking the window. You can't see out, and you can't see the front of the plane. And of all things, you have no control. You don't have a control of anything. You can't get off. You can't, you can't steer the plane. You can't adjust the speed of the plane. And yet, thousands of people, many of you have done it. You get on that plane, you don't even think about it, you sit down in that itty-bitty little seat, and you expect that you will arrive at your destination. And it happens. And so, getting on that plane is a step of faith. You do that, you completely give up control. Because you know that in the past, the, the reality is that this is quite okay. And for those of you in here who haven't flown, it's quite okay. It's fine. So all people, whether they're Christian or not, faith is something that we practice 
even if we're Christian or not. And so I have, I have, I believe, I'm going to, to show you something this morning. I believe that there are four different levels of faith and that Paul and James and Peter are wanting us to increase our faith. That's the, the passages that we read there in James and... Everybody okay? <laughs> um, Okay, so the first level is just basic, basic faith. It's the faith, the faith that gets you onto an airplane. Everybody has it. And I put these together as a pyramid, and I'll explain to you why once we get to the top. And so every human being practices faith at some level. And then the next level is the faith of religion. And that's where all Christians start out. I think you could say that there's probably other religions in that as well, but all Christians start out here at the faith of religion. It's here that we come to realize that we need something more in our lives. We need to become a Christ follower. And I want you to know this is not necessarily I'm, this isn't necessarily a bad place to be, right? However, it is my desire this morning to call you up to more. You see, it's in this level that much of the activity of the Christian life happens. We have a lot of people going to church, coming to church. They're involved in the Christian community. I would also say that I think that the four different postures that Pastor James taught us on, they would have their roots at this level. The posture of life for God, from God, under God, and over God, they would have, it's at this level of faith that we easily morph into. And by the way, I think all of us at some points in our lives find us in all of those postures that James has taught us on. But that's at this level. And then something happens. You hit a crisis, a trial, and suffering comes. The doctor gives you some bad news, or you lose your job. Some of you have buried loved ones, or maybe there's a close relationship that suffers irreconcilable differences. And it's at this point that you have a choice. And it's often one of three things that we choose. And these, these things happen subconsciously, most of them. I would like to invite you to consciously think about the choice you make when these things come. The first one is that you step back. Remember, one of the things that keeps most atheists atheists, or that has actually put them there as atheists is suffering. Many people that profess to be atheists cannot reconcile a loving, kind, merciful God with 
suffering. And so when this happens, if you're at this level of faith and you can't work through your crises, at this point, you simply step back. And our term would be that we've lost our faith. The second thing that happens is that you step aside. And this means that you still come to church, you still function as a Christian, but that relationship has pretty much died. You're probably not reading the Word much, you're probably not praying much, you're simply performing. You step aside. Here's my call to you. Here's what I would like for us to think about. The third option is you step up. You step up to the next level of faith. And that's the faith of desperation. Rather than pulling away from Christ, you push into. You pursue more. You recognize the brutal reality of your situation for what it is, and you push into. You're utterly dependent on Christ, and you call out. And in spite of the scene that it causes, you are desperate for Jesus, like the man in Mark chapter 9. You don't mind the crowd. You recognize your unbelief, but Jesus, help my unbelief. And in that desperate action, you take that is an action of faith. Or you're like blind Bartimaeus on the road to Jericho. Jesus and his disciples are leaving Jericho, and here is the blind man, and he begins to call out. And the crowd tells him, just don't bother the man. Just, just hush up. And he calls louder, Jesus, help me. I am blind. You step up to the next level of faith. You have nowhere else to go, nothing else to offer any relief. Many of you have been here, and some of you are here. Others of you will get here at some point. We know how desperately we need help and we know only Jesus has the answers. We only get here by experiencing these trials. According to what Paul and James and Peter, I don't think we can get here without experiencing these trials that test and try our faith. But let's take this a step further. The story in Mark 9 has a happy ending. Jesus heals the boy. Suppose that Jesus doesn't heal the boy. 
Suppose that you have this desperate faith. You have stripped yourself bare in desperation. And there's silence. Then what? Some of you are here this morning. What if that trial stays? What if your circumstances don't change? Will you still be able to find joy and to find peace? And by the way, that word joy that James uses, my brethren, count it all joy. That's the same word that Paul uses in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. My brethren, count it all joy. I'd like to invite you to the next level of faith, and that's the faith of surrender. And I think many of the characters that we find in Scripture arrived at this level of faith. This is the faith that's exemplified by Jesus in the garden when he clearly understood the brutal reality of his situation. He appealed to the Father. And yet, with the appeal, he volunteered a surrender. And here's something for us to learn in this. <clears throat> surrender doesn't mean that we don't have a preferred outcome. It doesn't mean that we're numb. It doesn't mean that we're numb to or oblivious to the situation. It only means that we are not emotionally attached to that outcome. That even in the silence and even in the stillness, we can have joy. We can have peace. Think of Paul. In his letter to the Philippians, so Paul wrote Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians in a Roman prison. Paul didn't know whether he would be released or whether he would be killed. And yet, here's what he writes to the Philippians. He'd just been talking about how that the gospel was being preached in the palace guard and that some were preaching the gospel for, for various reasons. And he says this, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul is He's thinking about whether he's going to be released or not. 
as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or whether by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul's saying, it would be beneficial to you if I could be released and come to you. But whatever glorifies the Father, whatever glorifies Jesus, hey, there it is. Whether I live or whether I die, it doesn't matter as long as Christ is glorified. I'd like to give you one more example. I have been fascinated by the book of Job. And I'm going to explain to you why. Job was a wealthy man. We all know the beginning two chapters of the story. How Job had ten children. He had thousands of camels and sheep and all that stuff. It's a little hard for us to reconcile that on what exactly that was. And he lost it all, right? But the real story The real story, I will tell you, is found in chapters 3 to 42. We know from chapter 1 that God calls Job a righteous man. We know Job offered sacrifices daily for his children. Job was a religious man. I'm going to propose that Job had the religion, that had the faith of religion. And then from chapters 3 to 42, Job rants and rails against God. And his friends rebuke him and point out that he should repent. And he maintains his innocence over and over. That he is a righteous man. He longs to die over and over. It would have been better for him to have died rather than be born. And then finally, in verse 38, God begins to speak out of the whirlwind. And God begins to ask him all these questions. Where were you when I hung the world? Where were you when I put all the galaxies and the stars in place? And and this whole list of things that our little human minds can't hardly comprehend. Where were you when I did all that? And finally, Job answers. Then Job answered the Lord and said, 
I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And here he's repeating what God had said. He's answering back. Now here's his answer. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job confesses. I have been ranting and railing about things that I have no idea about. And then he again says, Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. That God had told him that at the beginning of God's dialogue. And Job says, I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now here's the question that we need to ask ourselves. Job was a righteous man. What did he repent from? This is Job's way of saying, I have surrendered. You, God, have your way. Job's circumstances had not changed here. He was still sitting in dust and ashes with boils. All his belongings were gone. But God, you have your way with me. Faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservation. Job was saying, I trust you because you are God, not because of what you've done for me, not because you have fixed my situation, but because you're God and because you alone deserve the glory and the honor. Well, this morning, I don't have a list of practical applications. This morning, I would like to simply call you to a state of being, of being with the Father, regardless of our circumstances. We can find joy and we can find peace in our circumstances. I'm going to pray and then James, I'll let you close. Father, you are so good to us. We are so grateful that you have loved us, have known us, that you have created us, that you have provided a way for us to know and to be known. Father, I pray that each one here would be able to surrender to you, to say, you, Lord, whether I live or whether I die, 
that your name would be glorified. Father, we thank you, we praise you, pray in Jesus' name, amen.